You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Once you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to John 13, 18 through 30. John 13, 18 through 30. We pick up where we left off last week in our uh, the series in those uh, the kind of the middle portion of John 13 to 17. And we're in uh, the upper room where we left off last week. And uh, there is Jesus is having his last meal, uh, sharing these last moments and teaching these last things uh, to his, his disciples. And in the previous passage, he washes the disciples' feet and really turns our paradigm for leadership and, and, and service upside down and as he's doing so as he's washing feet and teaching he he drops these hints about a betrayer in their midst about someone who would uh, who would betray them in the most devastating of ways and if you've ever been betrayed before you too know that this is a pain of the most devastating kind it's not unique to us or a church or Christians. For if you visit any corner of the globe, people will feel the same disdain for treasonous acts on the law books of many civilized countries. And, and just within culture, there are harsh consequences for those who betray their country or their fellow man. But not just amongst the civilized and in the law courts, but even kids on the playground have animosity for the kid who switches teams mid-game and shares the secrets and the strategies of, their, uh, of the other team. But our passage this morning really prepares us for this kind of painful betrayal and the relational hurt that exists even in the family of God. For Jesus knows that his hour for departure literally is on the horizon. He also knows that the greatest act of of betrayal in human history is set in motion. And so let's read the text together. I'll read it. You follow along. And let's uh, see how these events unfold. We'll pick it up in verse 18 of John chapter 13. Jesus is speaking and he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is He to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, this is God's word for God's people. Jesus, in this section of scripture, is wisely preparing his disciples and consequently us for what to expect in a life of following him, as I said. As he's preparing us for all kinds of things of what a life of faith looks like, he gives us these expectations. And so write this down. Here's the central expectation of this text. Expect to be hurt by those close to you. The central expectation amongst this betrayal here of Judas uh, or of Jesus by Judas, he, we learn to expect to be hurt by those close to you. Now you might be thinking, well, that's, this isn't really like feel-good content for a Sunday morning. What did I? What, what are we getting into here? Well, if you are new with us, or you're just wondering. Uh, we uh, are just committed to taking the scripture section by section sequentially, not ignoring the hard or the painful or the socially unacceptable uh, uh, passages. And even as we talk about betrayal and hurt, I realize this is raw. I realize that as we, uh, as we come uh, to a section like this, you may be in a season in your own life where relational hurt is a very real thing. For here's the reality. Because of sin, this is an ever-present possibility for us. And because we are all in the progress of sanctification and growing in, in holiness, we, uh, we must embrace that nobody is perfect. The people sitting next to you are not perfect. Your leaders, those that you look up to, are not perfect. Even you are not perfect. And let's just make something, even as, uh, uh, as we begin, just very clear, even as we say, expect to be hurt by others. No, uh, let, let's not just think that we are always the victim in these equations. That, that these things happen only to us, that no, uh, 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 many times we too hurt others. And so we could say we could expect to be hurt by others, and the reality is, is that you will at some point hurt those near uh, uh, to you. And if we were to have a scale of like Jesus to Judas, far too often, if we're, if we're real, is we're probably more close to Judas than we are Jesus in many occasions. And we can't come to church. We can't enter into the uncommon community as Will uh, prayed about earlier here. We can't come into this thinking that everybody has it all figured out. And this is a place where I won't be, I, I, I won't be hurt. Church hurt is a real thing. Because church is made up of people who are still broken and sin remaining in us. And as we uh, bump into one another and uh, uh, interact with one another, the reality is, is that you will inevitably be hurt at some point uh, and in some way by an unkind word, a thoughtless action, and many times unintentional and sometimes maybe even intentionally, as will you hurt other people through unkind words, through thoughtless actions, sometimes, most of the time, unintentional, I would imagine, but maybe even intentionally. That's why we have other passages in the scriptures, like Matthew 18, verse 15, that says, if your brother sins against you, 
go and tell him his fault. And then it lines out this passage for or the, the procedures for uh, forgiveness and reconciliation and growth and holiness. But sometimes I think we read that and we mistake the if to mean in the unlikely event that your brother or sister sins against you. No, 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 no. It's rather more like when they sin against you, when you live in community, when your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them his fault. And if they repent, you've won your brother. And so Matthew 18 is just really teaching us all about forgiveness. After Jesus' teaching on that, right after it is a parable on forgiveness. That's why forgiveness, I would submit to you, is really a distinct attribute of following Jesus, of genuinely forgiving the debt of offense caused by somebody else is unique to following Jesus, for isn't that what he did towards us? We who did not deserve to be forgiven, we who committed, as R.C. Sproul said, cosmic treason, against the God of the universe, our acts of defiance against him, loving our sin and hating God. It was when we were his enemies that he came, laid down his life, and rose again that we might be freed from the penalty of our sin and freed from the power of our sin. Why? Because Christ forgave us in love. And the thing is, like, sin happens hurt results, but forgiveness heals. And Jesus shows us how to do that, even in the worst possible circumstances, even in the face of a painful betrayal. And so the text really then teaches us, well, how then do we navigate that kind of betrayal or relational hurt when we find ourselves in the midst of it? How do we do that like Jesus? Well, here's the first point as we just kind of take the text a section at a time here. Verses 18 to 20 teach us this, that the the Bible actually prepares us to be hurt, to not be surprised by it. It prepares us to be hurt. Now, come to the text here in verse 18 because we really jump into the text mid-conversation. If you are here last week or you remember, Jesus is teaching on the blessing of being saved and of getting to serve one another, right? He said, you're clean, you've been, uh, you've been set free, now serve, follow my example and serve the people around us and you will be, you will be blessed if you do them, right? That's what it's, just verse 17, you can see it right there. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then in verse 18, where we pick it up today, it like takes this turn here, right? Because not everybody is clean, as he's already dropped, or not everybody is saved. There is a betrayer, he says in verse 18, or I am not speaking of all of you. He's sitting around the table. Jesus and his 12 disciples are there, and he calls this out. He says, I know whom I have chosen. That beloved biblical concept that we, uh, uh, that we have, that we embrace of our being rescued by God out of our sin, and God setting his love on us, of rescuing out. And consequently, Jesus knows whom he has chosen, but he also knows that Judas will betray him. It's like that's why he's been saying this over and over here and why John, as he's writing this, why he makes such a big deal about it every time Judas is mentioned. He knows. He knows that it is coming. The scripture uh, has, uh, has uh, prophesied this, and he knows from the beginning. And that's why he quotes, he says, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. And he, and he quotes from Psalm 41.9. 
may have that in the, like if you have a study Bible, it may uh, indicate that. If not, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me is a quotation from Psalm 41, 9. And that psalm was written by King David. Speaking of uh, likely uh, the, the circumstances uh, recorded in 2 Samuel 15. Read those this afternoon. Do, uh, go further in your study this week in your own time with the Lord. Psalm 41 and 2 Samuel 15. What you'll find there is King David has now been made, he, he's been made king, but his son Absalom has, has uh, started this conspiracy to overthrow him. Absalom is now wanting to be king. David is not. And Ahithophel who is David's like advisor, his, his counselor, his right-hand man, betrays David and jumps onto Absalom's team. He's the guy who is sitting around his table, has now lifted his heel or put his heel, like think of it like he's put his foot to his neck to deliver the death blow. And now King David is feeling this and Jesus is quoting this so that now, the disciples would get so that we would get and understand that this is the promised son of David. The son of David is prom uh, promised from 2 Samuel 7, where God told David that he would have a king, a son that would come from him that would reign forever. It wasn't Absalom. It wasn't even Solomon and all of his wisdom and wealth. It would be Jesus who would come later. And now here is just additional proof that Jesus himself is the son of David. They were to expect this. Uh, they, they, they were to see, like, this was necessary. It wasn't just like an occupational hazard of being the savior but now as he says he's telling them this beforehand so that we're just like not that long after this hours really when the actual betrayal takes place that they would not be caught off guard but even more than that that they would believe that Jesus is I am now if you're listening carefully I was as I was reading it I intentionally left out the he because here in our English the the Greek is a little obscured it's ego me it's the Greek rendering of Exodus 3 when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and David says who should I tell them that sent me and what does God say tell them I am is the one who sent you. Now Jesus is saying, you, I want you, when you know that I'm betrayed, I want you to know that God, that I am is the one who is sending you. I am is the one that you have encountered. That's where even in verse 20, he's like, hey, listen up, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, that's the disciples here, the apostles, I'm sending you. If they receive me as the I am, the one who sent, then they also receive the Father. That theme we've seen all throughout John here. He He's telling them it's proof for the disciples and for us that he is, Jesus is indeed God. This is the pattern. This is the proof. But maybe you're asking then, okay, that happened to Jesus. It was necessary, even expected for him to be hurt. But why then is it expected even necessary for me to be hurt? Isn't this just an occupational hazard of living in a sin-broken world in a church full of people still in progress? Well, no. It's not just, you know, the hazards along the way. God in his wisdom is producing something in it even in the midst of the hurt. And the Bible prepares us for this. 
The, the, the New Testament has several examples preparing us for, for hurt, for suffering, for trials. Here's, here's, just, here's three of them. I'll put them on the screen here. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. The greatest chapter in the Bible. In the midst of this, it says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, right? The internal thing, when we come to Christ, the Spirit in here is saying, I am a son and daughter. This is incredible. A son or daughter of God. Like, how awesome is this? And as his son, we have this massive inheritance. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Now we want the glory part of our inheritance, don't we, right? Now we want heaven, doesn't don't we? Like we can't wait for the riches and the blessing of being with Jesus forever. We want that part of the inheritance. But part of the inheritance also, as we see here, is suffering like Jesus. Suffering through betrayal, suffering through sin and things that happen uh, in our life. It is part of what comes with being like Jesus. Paul also, the writer of to the church in Rome, also wrote this to the church in Philippi. In Philippians 3.10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Right? Just, uh, this is just verse 10. That uh, I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We want that, right? The resurrection power, the life that we have now that is different. It says, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Oh, well, we want that power, but we also must share then in the sufferings. Or, uh, not just Paul picks up on this, but Peter. Here's First Peter 4, 12 through 13. Begins by saying this, Beloved, do not be surprised. Don't you love how he addresses the Christians that he's writing to? Loved ones. Right? Reminder, we need loved ones. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, the trials that he's really speaking of here is the persecution that comes from following Jesus. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes it is relational hurt. But here's the thing. We're not to be surprised at it. Be like, wait, this is abnormal. Am I doing something wrong? Why is this so hard? No, this is part and parcel. This is normal in the Christian life because it is producing something. But he says, but rather, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Jesus suffered, so too we, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Well, we all see, here's the thing, church. The Bible prepares us to suffer. The Bible prepares us uh, to expect uh, suffering and relational pain and betrayal, even as a normal part of living in this sin burken world and trying to be like Jesus. It's the pain, it's the hurt like this that sanctifies us that is producing in us greater holiness if we allow it to do that. If we allow it to let it put down deeper roots in our faith, making us stronger to withstand the the hardships of this world, the storms that come with life. And so think of it this way. Every time you offer forgiveness to somebody that hurts you, or every time you humble yourself uh, to to seek forgiveness from somebody that you have hurt, it's as in so doing, it's like your roots are cracking through the harder, deeper soil, getting down into the rich nutrients that are way below the surface strengthening the tree of your faith. 
But every time we reject to forgive somebody or we reject to seek forgiveness, it's like it's eroding the soil out from under our tree, exposing uh, our roots to the hot sun and making us weaker to the storms to the point where then we become bitter and that bitterness is then poisoning the roots of our faith, weakening us. And so the Bible teaches us that it's doing something. It's preparing us and normalizing this into our life. But here's the thing. Don't make the mistake then of just thinking because it's normal, okay, we'll have to expect this, that then somehow it doesn't hurt. Okay, the more we go through this, like we just get toughened up and now it no longer uh, matters and we can just grin and bear it. It's quite the opposite, actually. You see, look how the text continues in, in, in verse, verse 21. Actually, uh, it teaches us that betrayal will always hurt. Relational pain uh, will always hurt. Look at Jesus' example in verse 21. He says, after saying these things, right, after telling him, hey, I'm going to be betrayed, the scripture has said it, it says, what, what does it say there? Jesus stiffened his upper lip. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? Jesus was troubled, troubled in his spirit. It's the same word that we saw back in chapter 11 when Lazarus has died. Jesus uh, is now speaking to uh, his sisters. He's troubled in his spirit. He's devastated. He's disturbed. He's saddened. You shouldn't think that even the Jesus, the God of the universe who knows this is coming, is like somehow unfeeling or hardened by the pain. No. He's troubled. It hurts even the Son of God. And then he goes on to testify. Look at this here. Truly, truly, again, like those words, I listen up. He's got something important to say. I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you is going to do this. It's like sitting around the family dinner table and calling it out, right? You can, you can just imagine here, right? It says the disciples are uncertain of whom he is gonna, uh, who he's speaking like. You can almost imagine how the conversation is going here. They seem to be shocked and speechless for once. Or they're like introspective, who, me? Or are they just blaming like in their minds, like I bet it was him, right? I'm going to bet Peter at the end of this that it was Andrew who's going to, to do it, right? All John records is that they look at one another. You see that? Disciples are looking at one another. Matthew 26 actually records that they all do actually like question. They all ask, is it I, Lord? You know, and who knows like the sense in which they're actually asking that. Are some of them actually like genuinely like, or, like repentant? Like, Lord, am, am I the one who did it? Or others like even Judas himself, Matthew 26 records, he asks, is it I, Rabbi? Testing the foreknowledge of Jesus in this. Does he really know what I am going to do? It goes on, and you have this, like, comical, like, Jesus just lays it down, and now all of a sudden you have this, like, this comical whispering moment between Peter and John, right? It's just, like, going back and forth, like, whispering. It's like kids who are arguing about who's going to ask Dad if we can go. Like, hey, you ask, ask, ask Jesus, you know, right? It's at the table here. Understand also how they're sitting around the table. You have Jesus, and then you have John on one side and Judas on the other side of Jesus right here. And so, and how they, they're not like sitting in chairs, like don't think of like, you know, our traditional Western tables, but they're all kind of reclined there with like their head at their chest and like their feet kind of uh, splayed out to the side there. And so they're all kind of like, you know, uh, uh, together in that way around the table. And so 
Peter asks John to do so. One of the disciples, you see in verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. I love that, don't you? This is John who's writing about himself in such a way, not because he's like arrogant or anything like that. He's not like boasting like, hey, I'm the one who Jesus loved, right? But as like, I think it's, it's like in a sense of amazement. Jesus loves me. Hey, me, like, I'm around the table. Jesus loves me enough to choose me, and now I'm around the table here. I, and I love that it's, that it's included here. And, and, and may, honestly, maybe that's the reminder that somebody needs. Maybe that's the reminder that you need this morning. You're in the midst of, of relational pain. You're in the midst of something hard. And just like we saw in 1 Peter 4, and now here again, don't forget, you are loved by God. He hasn't abandoned you. Even as somebody else hasn't betrayed you, hasn't failed you. You're loved by God through the midst of even the relational pain. He knows what it's like. The most horrific event of betrayal. He's, he is not unsympathetic. He's not, you know, even as he's in control of the situation that you're in, he is not unfeeling to the pain of it. He loves you and he's with you through it all. And yet he, he knows, he's troubled, he loves, and he doesn't shrink back. He embraces the reality, he calls it out, and so we too, I think this is helpful for us, we embrace the reality, pain hurts, these things hurt even when we don't know who, even when we have no answers to the why this is happening, or what's going to come next, and we're fearful of what the, you know, the next shoe is going to drop. We embrace the pain, but here's the thing, church. We can't just shrink back from the relationships, and we can't just try to suppress the pain of it all. No, Jesus is here preparing us in this section of Scripture for the hurt that is just a part of our life so that we don't go overboard when these things happen. Because it's so, so easy to do so. Relational pain like this clouds our judgment. It, 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 they, they lead us astray when we follow these, the, the pain in our emotions to, to, to doing things that maybe, you know, even years or decades down the line that we then regret. And so, what are, you know, we, we go overboard all kinds of ways in moments like this. Here's just a few. They're on the screen. Ways that sometimes we go overboard in the midst of pain is some, we just we become suspicious overly skeptical about the motives and the words and the things that people do. Where because we've been hurt, now we distrust everybody. Fear filtering the things that they say, projecting uh, the actions onto somebody else that, uh, that, that, that they never committed, but somebody else did. And so now we, we're just suspicious in such a way that we're paralyzed from meaningful relationships. And, and if we're not careful, we go overboard by then becoming like hard-hearted of just stealing ourselves to, to, to relationships, stealing ourselves against uh, what uh, the relationships are in. Like, I'm never doing that again. I'm never getting in religion. I'm never, I'm never going back into a community or into a church or things, and, and we become hard-hearted. Maybe it's, it's just it's bitterness then. Now we just like hate everybody and we're complaining about everything and now there's just zero joy in life because we have become embittered to everything and everyone and now we just find ourselves disobedient and overboard for I know better than the Lord. If God would allow this to happen to me, why would I trust him? 
Why would I forgive? Why would I love? And we go overboard in the midst of the pain and the hurt. But keep going through the text here, because I want us to see here, see how the Lord meets these moments. Both the pain of betrayal and the person who betrays him. See, See, he meets it head on in love. He meets Judas. He meets the moment in love. Write that down. Number three, we meet it head on in love. See, the, like the disciples are asking who the, like I said, Peter and John have this whispering moment here, and Judas, Jesus just points out Judas directly, right? Through an act of love and friendship. Through, through, through an act of great honor, actually. And, and, and as a matter of fact, if we just kind of like zoom out of what's happened, what's like transpired just in chapter 13 up until this point, all Jesus has been doing is wooing Judas to himself with these uh, appeals of love, with these acts of, of love towards him the whole time, right? It's as if this here is like a one final appeal to Judas. I know what you're going to do, and it is not too late. It is not, not, not too late. He's already washed his feet, a symbol of great service and love towards him. Jesus has strategically placed Judas next to him in a place of honor. As the, at, the, at the head of the table, he has specifically stated scripture that he will be betrayed, wielding the power of God, God's word that has the power to transform lives. He quotes this scripture that it would would change Judas' mind. He now dips the morsel of bread in the wine as an act of friendship. In that culture, it was a great honor that the head of the uh, the meal would dip the bread and the juices to, to the guest of honor, and he does that with Judas, and then sends him away with a troubled heart. He is, he is wooing him in. All along the way, Judas has been entrusted with much. What have, we, what have we learned about Judas? He had the money bag. He was trusted amongst the rest of the disciples. We learned some things from his name. Judas, he's the son of Simon Iscariot. There in verse 26, right? Even, even that tells us where he's from, Iscariot, from, from Kiriath, a city in southern Israel. It's believed that Judas was uh, well-educated and well-connected, definitely more so than the poor Galilean fishermen of northern Israel. You just think, all along the way, for years now, Judas has been in all of Jesus' classes, sat through all the teachable moments, witnessed all the, the miracles, is there along the way. Matthew 10 even has them numbered amongst the disciples that were given the responsibility to go out in pairs and to preach the gospel that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was given the power to heal the dead or to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers and to cast out demons. He's given all of that and he guts Jesus. It's inappropriate to even say that he stabbed Jesus in the back because that assumes he like snuck up on Jesus and got him in the back. No, Jesus knows it's coming, faces him, and takes it in the gut. And Jesus, all along the way, has set the table, has set the table for Judas to repent and to believe and to brace his love, and yet he chooses darkness. It's tragic, it's sad. It's not, it's not the first time we're presented with this reality. John 12 ends with the reality people reject Jesus. They reject the truth. They want to continue in their sin. They harden their heart. 
towards the love of God. And just as Jesus meets the moment head on with love, so too we, in the moments of relational hurt, we meet it head on with love, doing everything we can in our power to live at peace, to love them, to forgive them, to remain with open arms, to share the truth, to warn of danger. But the thing is, is we can't force people to respond in kind. We can't force people to believe, and it should wrench our soul when they choose the darkness, when they harden their hearts. But in those moments, we can't harden our hearts. The moments when our adult children walk away from the faith, squandering the opportunity, and you feel betrayed by 18 years of pouring out your life, of discipling them and raising them in the things of the Lord. The moments when your roommate shares a confidential piece of information with other friends and, 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 and now that's been used against you and you uh, feel betrayed by the, the, the precious commodity of trust has been abused. Or you find out your mentor's been living a double life. Somebody that has poured into you for, for, for years and you're now feeling betrayed and wondering if anything that she said was true. Maybe it's somebody that you've been pouring into. Somebody that you've uh, given much of your time. You've even helped them financially. And then he suddenly goes dark. And when he finally then responds, has the uh, audacity to, uh, to, to call you the hypocrite and claim that you abandoned him. Or her business partner blows all of your capital betrayed the hard work and wasted all the time and talent and money to get there. Or, heaven forbid, you find those messages on the phone of your spouse from somebody not you and you feel betrayed the covenant that you stood and made before the Lord. So what do we do? It's in these moments we cast ourselves on the grace of Christ, embracing his love, trusting his sovereignty, believing that he is in control, and knowing that though this moment, this situation that has caught you unawares is not so with him. That he knows and he knows what it's like. But see, here's the thing, even as we meet it head on with love, even though we embrace that Jesus uh, uh, is in control of it, it doesn't mean that it always makes sense. See, here, here's the thing, it's how the, uh, which is it's really what's drawn out of the final verses here is that even though we expect it, it that doesn't mean you, we can expect it to all just make sense. That one bit of information or one conversation is just going to like all of a sudden like, oh, okay, this makes it all the better now, right? And, and, and see, here's the thing. Like normally when I'm working through my sermon prep and all that, I try to like as a piece of my puzzle, I try to like make things memorable, the points, you know, whether through you've maybe noticed this, like through uh, alliteration or symmetry and how the points are. And, you know, as I was just working through, it just seems appropriate to just kind of say things like this. <laughs> It's just, no, just going to hear the thoughts on a passage like this, you know. But th this is what's crazy to me about the passage. Jesus tells them exactly who will betray them, who will betray him. 
He lays it out in no uncertain terms, right? Tells them it's going to happen. He tells them uh, who will do it, and still they are confused, right? Verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. He's like, wait a minute. You know, we can't have the pride of place looking back. We know the end from the beginning, and so we have to take it easy on the disciples. They're not just like a bunch of buffoons here, right? But they're still confused. Nobody knows why. They just think like, oh, Jesus must be sending out Judas to go shopping, right? And while you're gone, while you're heading down to H-E-B, if you see any, you know, homeless people along the way, give them a few dollars, right? They're just like, the, the, no. They think Jesus is sending Judas to go shopping, and it is actually Jesus sending him to go do the deed that he has chosen to do, sending Judas to betray him. And don't miss this. Like, Jesus is in control. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He sends them down. And church, this is what we cling to in the moments when it's all confusing, when it's all chaotic, when we don't know why or what is going to happen next when people choose the darkness. See, look, look at verse 30. He immediately, he, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now, and it was night is not just like a timestamp, so we know, oh, it's, it's, it's the night, nighttime. No, it's much more profound. It's, this, it's, it's significant of the spiritual darkness in which Judas is choosing here. Like, it, 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 there's some spiritual significance here. Like, like, follow the line of reasoning in John's writing. What does he say about Jesus? Jesus is the light of the world, right? Believers, we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light and the world is in the darkness unbelievers walk in darkness Judas chooses darkness he chooses to walk out into the night and that's this befuddling right why why would anyone in their right mind reject the light reject the love of Jesus he's sitting right next to him offering all of this why would he do it Redemption, there's just not an easy answer to that. Just not. Yeah. We could try to just say simply, well, yeah, people choose their sin over choosing Jesus. And even that is just overly simplistic. What we do know is that sin has messed everything up. Things don't make sense. Why people reject, like it just, it doesn't, you know, someday I hope that it will. We have eternity with Jesus, we're sitting around there, I'll be like, all right, help me understand this one, Jesus. And maybe we don't even have to, maybe we'll just get there and it'll be like, and downloaded understanding, I don't know. But what we can know is that only Jesus makes sense, church. Why we go through these things, why the, the pain, I don't know. But it, it, the only thing that I do know is that apart from Christ, it's even more messed up. And only Jesus can somehow make something that is incredibly uh, painful also uh, eternally good. It's only Jesus there. 
So, like as we wrestle in these own, in our own moments, whether we're in the middle of it now or we're coming out of a moment like this or something is on the horizon, I don't know. I don't want us to be all like skeptical and like, you know, paranoid about moments like these. That's not the point here, but it is as we wrestle with the painful reality of relational hurt, both things done to us and things done by us. Let us not be thrown overboard, but rather lashed down by the love of God, by the sovereignty of God, thankful that we have been forgiven of our treason, of our Judas-like defiance against the Lord, as Jesus went to the cross for us. Not long after this, Jesus will walk those steps, will take up that cross and die in our place, the death that we deserve to die thereby unleashing an undeserved forgiveness on we who are his. It's what we remember in communion. It's what we see across the scripture. There even today, is in, a, in a moment, we will take communion where we uh, remember and thank Jesus for his death in our place, for our union with him, our union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, and where we thank God for his union uh, with us in the community of faith, in, with his body. And it's our reminder that if we have hurt anyone, to with all haste make it right to go and seek forgiveness, knowing that Jesus has forgiven us the greater debt that we might walk with him in these moments as we await the glory to be revealed to us. Church, let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts and then take communion together. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are thanking you uh, for preparing us in this way. Thank you for loving us so much to help us just embrace the difficulty of life on earth. That's all your kindness. That is your grace towards us, Lord, and for that we praise you. Just pray special grace, even now, for those who this is a very real and present thing, God. Give them exactly what they need. Help them, God, to, uh, to just meet it head on in love, to not run. God, protect them from the hardness of heart and the bitterness that is so easily embraced. Lord, may we be a church of people who navigate these things like you, Christ. Quick to forgive, quick to love, quick to own when we, when we fail, when we hurt others, Lord. For the sake of your great name, God, do this work in us and through us, Jesus. God, we need your help to do that, even this week maybe even this afternoon. We love you and pray now in Christ's name. Amen.